What's up, everybody? Brady Farkas Show, back at it on a Friday here on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Full show tonight, all 90 minutes. We are up until 7 o'clock. We've got Red Sox baseball coming up at 7.10. They take on the Royals tonight. They start today six and a half games back of the third and final wild card spot. Yes, I declared them dead. No, they are not mathematically dead, though. So six and a half games back. Royals tonight, very winnable series on the road in Kansas City. It's a Royals team that's scrappy. Trust me, like I just saw the Mariners play them for seven games inside a week span. The Royals are very, very scrappy. They swing at everything. They run a lot. They make contact. They're not an easy team to beat. They do not have good pitching. They do not have a good bullpen, but they absolutely can make your life miserable on the bases. We saw the Red Sox struggle with them a bit at Fenway. Red Sox needed to walk off home run by Pablo Reyes to win that one game. Uh, in the opener of that series. So we'll see what happens tonight. We'll give you the lineups coming up about 6.50 or so. So we go right to Red Sox baseball, and then the game is 8.10 as well. I'm here. Danny is here. Danny McKibrigan engineering the program behind the glass. You can get in on the text line, 802-585-3026. That's 802-585-3026. Tom Karen, our Red Sox insider at Nesson, with us here today on a Friday, a rare Friday, going to be with us at about 6.05. He is in Kansas City with the Red Sox. So, Danny, let go. Five, four, three, two, one. And here we go. The opening thoughts of the Brady Farkas Show are brought to you by Sticks and Stuff and Swan Lumber, Vermont's most complete locally owned home center with locations in Enosburg, Derby, Middlesex, St. Albans, and at Swan Lumber. They're online at sticksandstuff.com. You know, Danny, I've often said this, okay? It is the Friday before a holiday weekend. So I'll be honest with you. I don't know how many people are listening right now. So I always take attendance here on the Friday before a holiday weekend because I want to know how many people are out there. So you text me, 802-585-3026. I want to know if you're listening and where you're listening from. And I'll, t- I'll tell you this, that your participation here kind of dictates where the show is going to go. Because if, if 50 people text in and say they're here listening, I've got a full-blown just straight to its sports program to get to if one person says they're listening and i think it's just me and danny then i got a couple other things here i'm going to deviate from mark in essex says he's listening we get a text that says i'm listening uh, on the way home to new haven vermont so we got a couple people listening right now i do have an off-topic story that i want to get to that i think you will find interesting it's not just a throwaway segment so um I will get to that in about 15 minutes. Ross says he's in. Joe in Richmond says uh, he's not happy about the Matt Corral signing, what's going on with Bill Belichick. We're going to talk about all this stuff. There's enough of you out here, and Will says he's listening. Okay, there's enough of you out here that I will get to a very sports-heavy topic to start. I will save my off-topic for about 15 minutes from now. But I promise you it will be worth your wait. You will find it interesting as well. Steve from Montpelier says I'll be listening for the next hour. We appreciate you, Steve. Thank you. So, this is a good pre-holiday crowd here. Usually, you know, again, I never know who's listening here on a uh, on a pre-holiday Friday. You know, day before Thanksgiving, day before Christmas Eve, whatever. Here we are, day before Labor Day weekend, and we've got a bunch of people listening. And I know we're going to have everybody listening next week, right? Like, when football starts, that's when the sports radio crew is out in droves. So the fact that you're all here now is uh, very, very exciting for me to see and exciting for Danny as well. Danny, I was thinking about the Boston Red Sox and been thinking about kind of how the Red Sox got to this point. And I was listening yesterday to a Mariners-related interview 
that Jerry Depoto gave. Jerry Depoto is the Mariners, you know, head of baseball operations. He's the equivalent of High and Bloom for the Mariners. And I was listening to him talk about the way the Mariners were built. And I'm starting to wonder, should the Red Sox have been built the same way? And what I'm getting at is this. What the, what the, 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 the gist of this is is the following. The reason why the Mariners right now I think are good and are maybe sustainably built is that when the Mariners went through their rebuild, they started out, like they gutted it, right? They gutted it. They went to the studs. But when they started their rebuild, they went very, very college-heavy in the draft. And this is what Jerry DePoto said, and I started to really think about this in terms of the Red Sox, and we'll get to them in a second. The Mariners said, what is the quickest way for us to get good again? Okay, we're going to tear this thing down. What's the quickest way for us to get good? So DePoto says, we started out this rebuild. We went very, very college-heavy in the draft. I don't remember exactly what years, but you look at it. They took Emerson Hancock in the first round, I believe, out of Georgia. They took Logan Gilbert out of Stetson. They took George Kirby out of out of Elon. Like They went college-heavy, and they went pitchers. So they started out their rebuild. They went college-heavy pitchers. And they said, these guys will get to the big leagues quicker because they're college guys. They're not high schoolers. They're not 17-year-olds. They will get to the big leagues quicker. And you cannot win without good pitching. And then once the Mariners really built up this college pitching core and they started to develop these pitchers and these pitchers then got to the big leagues, then they said, okay, now we're going to invest in the offensive side of things. So then they started investing in offense. And then now they feel they've got such a good system that they've started taking high school players because they're like, look, we've built up a really good base here. We've built up young major league players. Now we can go for the upside guys. And I start to think about the Red Sox, and I think to myself, should they have built up the same way? We, and I included, have praised Hyam Bloom for building up the farm system, right? There's no doubt about it. Hyam Bloom has built up the farm system. Part of the problem for the Red Sox, though, is that they don't have any pitching, and a lot of the high-end talent in their farm system isn't, isn't here yet. And that might be a problem in what High and Bloom has done. Again, and, and I haven't fully vetted this. I admit this. I heard this yesterday from DePoto 24 hours ago, and I thought to myself, yeah, that makes sense. The Mariners did do that. They drafted young pitching, college pitching. They developed it quickly. Then they decided to go draft college hitting, get that to the majors, and now they're drafting upside. So they've kind of got this wave of pitching established, then college offense, now young upside players. And I think to how the Red Sox did it, the Red Sox have kind of built their team under high and bloom, built their system in just a hodgepodge of ways. They have accumulated talent. Trust me, they've accumulated talent. But I don't know that they've really had a plan. Okay, The Red Sox drafted Nick York in 2020, right? The COVID year draft, High and Bloom's first draft, they drafted Nick York out of high school. And he's six to seven years away from the majors. He's a talented player, no doubt. But is he a player that's really ready to help you win soon? We haven't seen him yet. Here we are three years later, we have not seen Nick York. 
Then they get a break, right, or an unfortunate reality of drafting third the next year. They draft Marcelo Meyer. Some people say the most talented player in the draft. But again, a guy who's six or seven years away, maybe at best case scenario four or five, away from helping you. And I look at the Red Sox problems. The Red Sox do not have pitching. Okay, They don't have top-end pitching in their system. They don't have what the Mariners built. And for the guys they've drafted, they drafted all the upside guys first. And now these guys, they're just waiting and waiting and waiting for these guys to get here. And I, I just wonder if the Red Sox have been built kind of backwards. Trust me, I am not in the business of praising the way the Mariners do things. Okay, I've been I've been thirty years strong as a Mariners fan, and I've been disappointed largely for all thirty of them, mostly. Okay, ninety five was great, two thousand one was great, and some memories of Griffey, Ichiro, and Felix were great. But by and large, the Mariners have been a colossal disappointment most of my life. I am not in the business of sitting here and telling you how great they do things. But when I look at the team they've built now, I think to myself. That Mariners team should be able to win. They clearly did have a plan. The young pitching was drafted out of college. It developed quickly. It matriculated quickly. It got good quickly. Then they had a wave of offense behind it, the Cal Raleigh's of the world. And then they've now got the upside guys that you can try to hit home runs within your system. So if they do hit, great. If they don't hit, you still got something pretty good. The Red Sox, I'm like, They've accumulated talent. They've accumulated talent. But have they really had a plan? And that is something I'm now wondering. Again, Marcelo Meyer, Nick York, these guys are exciting. But they haven't made it here yet. And I I want these young guys, I want the Red Sox to be sustainably good. This This is my biggest fear about the Red Sox, is that, they're building up this talent base, but they still have to sprinkle in so many older players, so many outside players that you're relying on to hit, right? Like the Justin Turners this year, who did? Corey Kluber this year, who didn't? Garrett Richards other years, who didn't? Uh, Martin Perez, who hit for one year and not for the other. Like they just keep having to go outside the organization to find guys, to be stopgap guys because their, their young stars are far away. Yes, they got Casas here. Yes, they got Durant here, Durant here. But those are not high and bloom guys. Those are not high and bloom guys. I don't believe Durant was drafted by Bloom. I know for a fact that Casas wasn't because I saw Casas uh, with Dave Dombrowski on the field at Fenway before a Red Sox Mariners game a couple years ago. So Dombrowski drafted Casas in the first round. Texter says, listening in North uh, in Northfield, appreciate you. Kyle in Burlington says the Red Sox won't pay to sign pitchers, and Bloom has traded away young talent for it, thus they are stuck. I don't know that that's true. I mean, the Red Sox haven't really traded away talent to get pitching. I mean, I mean, I'm trying. To, I'm going off the top of my head here. Sale that was a Dombrowski move. That was not a high and Bloom move. James Paxton was signed, so there was nothing given up to go and get James Paxton. Um, Kluber was signed. We don't have to like it, but Kluber was signed. Pavetta, they gave up Heath Hembry and another reliever in the COVID season 2020 to the Phillies. That was a good trade by Pavetta, or a good trade by Bloom to go get Pavetta, a guy who's been helpful. So that's a deal that I like. 
Winkowski, they gave up Benintendi for in a three-way deal. I, that, okay. I, I, Whitlock was a Rule 5 draft pick. So I, no, the Red Sox, have they haven't gone big in the pitching market either on trade or in free agency. Another reason maybe they should have done what I'm saying and what the Mariners did, which is draft and develop it over and over again. And they didn't do that. Texter says, all this may be true, but when you lead the majors in errors, it will be a long year. That's fair. Absolutely fair. The defense has let this team down. And I'm not giving the Red Sox an out on this. I just, it's just fair to point out. Trevor Story is an elite defender. We know that. That was his reputation. We saw it last year at second. We've seen it this year in the time he's been back. So Trevor Story not being able to play shortstop all year absolutely impacted this team defensively. The team would have been better, much better defensively, had Story been here all year. That's that's absolutely fair. So their plan was to be better defensively. Where they've screwed up is thinking that, like, they knew Story was going to be out in January, and they decided to put Kike Hernandez, to take Kike Hernandez out of his comfort zone in center field or at second base and put him at shortstop and think that could work. That was a failed plan. It was a failed execution of the plan, and they stuck with the plan far too long. They could have signed Jose Iglesias, a glove for a shortstop. They could have found the Pablo Reyes of the world, a glove for a shortstop. They could have put Kike at second. They could have tried Arroyo at short at the beginning. They could have put Kike at second and gotten someone else to play short. They could have put Kike back at center and not needed Duvall. There were options there because they had enough time from when they knew Story got hurt. I do believe this team's initial plan with Trevor Story in second was for them to be a better defensive club than to have the most errors in baseball. But when Story got hurt, certain things changed, and the Red Sox did not adapt well. Both things, as usual, can be true. Both things, as usual, can be true. The defense has not been good, right? Casas was bad early. Kike was bad at shortstop all throughout the year. Devers has not looked good at times. He certainly has the ability to make the spectacular at times. There are times I watch Devers and I'm like, wow, man, he's got an absolute cannon for an arm. He'll make a diving play on the line. And then there's other times where routine ground ball, he sits back on his heels and it takes a top spin off and it goes into left field. We've seen that far too often. Yoshida does not appear to be a good defensive outfielder. It was the knock we heard on him coming over from Japan. Now, I think his offense is certainly worth it, but he's not a very good defensive outfielder. So there, there have been very big issues defensively with this team. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM and FM at WDEVradio.com. We'll talk more about this with Tom Karen of Nesson. He'll be with me at about 6.05. Let me tell you my off-topic story. One more from the U.S. Open and something else serious that I've never dealt with before. Not even Danny knows about this. I'll tell you what it is next on the Brady Farkas Show on DEV. <laughs> Welcome back in, Brady Farkas Show, right here on WDEV, AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. Tom Karen, Red Sox Insider at Nesson with us here in about 15 minutes. He'll be with us at about 6.05. TC always with us on a Wednesday, but we didn't have a show on a Wednesday, so appreciate him stopping by today on a Friday. He is in Kansas City, live with the Red Sox as they get ready for a series with the Royals. Our coverage begins at 7.10. Danny, two things uh, I, I want to kind of tell you about. I haven't even told you about this, which is you know wild because we talk so much before the show one that's far less serious is just kind of a fun oddity here but we were watching earlier right we have on the studio we're watching u.s open right i told you yesterday that i had been at the u.s open well after so caroline wozniacki won today she beat uh, jessica brady an american on the women's side and then after every match 
the players will sign four tennis balls. And then the players will hit the tennis balls into the crowd. And it's a souvenir for the crowd. They generally will hit one ball in one direction, one ball in the other, one ball in the other, and one ball in the other. So each quadrant of the facility gets an opportunity to get an autographed ball. I don't know if this happens at every match, but it certainly happens in the bigger arenas with the bigger players, right? Like, I don't know that the mixed doubles match I was watching is doing this, but every ball, uh, every big arena, they do this. I forgot to tell you yesterday, so I'm in Louis Armstrong Stadium, right, watching Igis Fiatic play, who's the number one player on the women's side. She, she, so I'm walking down the stadium, kind of like baseball, you know, baseball stadium style here, where you're walking down from the bleed, you know, from the, the upper level, you're walking down to a ramp that will eventually take you down to the third level and then eventually the second level, et cetera, to get out. So Igis Fiantic hits one of her ball, one of her tennis balls autographed right at us, like directly to us, right in front of us, about ten rows in front. Like she took this thing full power. Like she went from the center court to the fourth level, ten rows in front of me. I was that close to getting the Igis Fiantic uh, top-ranked player autograph ball. Now, talk about a collection, a, a collector's item, right? Go to New York, hang out for a day at the Open, end up with a, with an autograph from the top-ranked player that you get for free and caught in the crowd. I've never caught a foul ball at a real baseball game before. Minor league game, yes, but I've never caught a foul ball at a baseball game. I can't imagine what it would have been like to catch this tennis ball from Igus Fiantic that missed, missed by ten rows, Danny. Ten rows. She hit this thing four, four decks up and missed it by ten rows. And I'm disappointed you didn't jump over some seats to go get it. It would have taken more than jumping over seats. I would have had to push over old people, push over little kids. It would have been like an episode of Seinfeld. You're too old to remember Seinfeld, sadly, but that's how old I'm getting I still now. watch Seinfeld. What are you talking about? Do you? Okay, good. I'm I glad do. to hear this. Do you, do you remember the episode where no. George is dating the woman and there's a fire at the kid's birthday party and he pushes old people out of the way? to get out, and then Eric the Clown has to put the fire out because George was too cowardly and he ran out, leaving everybody behind. I don't think I'm on that season yet. Okay, that's what I would have had to do, though. Like, that's what I would have had to do. I would have had to uh, knock ever, knock everyone over, jump over a railing, knock some people down, and I didn't know she was going to hit it, you know, right in our direction. So, you know, I, I wasn't prepared for it. But, yeah, it's about ten rows in, uh, ten rows further, closer, I would have had the Igish Fiance tennis ball. Anyways, let me tell you about the other thing that's happened to me, interestingly, in the last week. Um, my brother, my little brother, is 27, and he is the healthiest person that any of us know. Okay, He's the healthiest person any of us know. Like, borderline, like, it's obsessive how healthy he is. Like, I'm talking eats perfectly, doesn't eat junk food of any kind, like barely allows himself one cheat meal a week. Like it, it's annoyingly healthy to me. Um, cares about his body more than anyone, or treats his body well, I should say, better than anybody that I know. And, you know, he doesn't drink anything but water, hasn't had a soda in a decade. Like he's just, he's just wired differently, certainly different than me, right? Like I'm like, hey, football season started, give me a six-pack, give me some chicken wings, and – uh you know, let's get some nachos in here, too. That's me. My brother would never do that kind of thing. So we, we love each other. We get along well. But our, our food levels are certainly different. Exercises like crazy. He's uh, unbelievably diligent with his workout program. Like, we drove to my grandma's funeral eight hours to Ohio. We stopped at a rest stop. He's doing pushing lops, pushing uh, push-ups in the parking lot. Like, that's how obsessive he is about making sure he gets everything in. So my brother hadn't been feeling well recently. And um, 
you know, last week he, I, you know, hadn't really told me, but he told my mom he wasn't feeling that well and didn't really know what was up, had been feeling really tired, had been getting really thirsty, ended up having to go to the hospital. It turns out my brother, the healthiest person I know, is now a type 1 diabetic. And, you know, they've caught it, and they found out he's been living with type 1 diabetes for at least three months. I don't know what, like, tests they run and what body parts they're looking at necessarily and what things they're looking at within your body, but whatever they're looking at kind of has detectors on them. And they can tell that these things have been unhealthy for at least three months. That like they the records of your body only go back three months, but they can it could have been more. He could have been living with diabetes for a year, but he's been having it for at least three months. And it was wild to me given how healthy he is. Now, there's a difference between type one and type two. And type one, it doesn't really kind of matter what your level is. It feels just kind of random. So my brother, for as much trouble as he's gone to be healthy, ended up getting this disease anyways, which is wild for me to think about. But I have never been around really a type 1 diabetic. Danny, have you ever been around a type 1 diabetic, like someone close to you? No. No, I haven't. So I know type 2 diabetics, and, and, you know, I I don't quite understand at all, like, insulin and sugar and when it's too high and when it's too low and what triggers it and what causes it and what the fix is. I haven't really ever had to to know about that stuff. I'm now starting to learn about it. But, um, you know, we go to to the U.S. Open, and, you know, all of a sudden, like we walk like 10 minutes from the Uber stop to to the U.S. Open, and my brother all of a sudden looks like he's going to pass out or get nauseous. And he's got a sensor basically in his arm. It's it's not a sensor in his arm. It's a sensor on his arm, I should say. Kind of like an Apple Watch. Like That's kind of an easiest way to think about it, except it's on your arm. And he puts his phone up to it, and it tells him what his levels are. And he's like, okay, I'm crashing. And I don't quite know what that means at this point, but I know it's not good. So now we end up sitting before we ever get into the open for like 10, 15 minutes while he takes some stuff. He's got some, some. it's not medicine, it's like a glucose tablet, eats a box of raisins, which has some sugar in it or something like that. And it's just wild now to think like that the, the healthiest person I know now has to live like this. And it's not that it's bad, right? Like a lot of people have diabetes and are thriving, and he will thrive as well. But getting used to this is going to be a big-time adjustment for him, a big-time adjustment for all of us, like just kind of seeing it because, you know, he'll work out in the morning, he'll eat, he'll work out in the morning, he'll come back, and he'll do whatever. He's very, very active. He's always on the go. Well, now he's got a plan. Okay, when am I working out? When am I eating? What exactly am I eating? When am I taking my reading here? And what happens if my reading is too high? And what happens if my reading is too low? And then what happens if my reading gets too low in the middle of the night? And his phone will buzz at him because it knows, like, his phone knows, like this app knows when his levels get too high or low, and it will beep at you like incessantly if you've done this. So it will wake him up in the middle of the night. It's just crazy to think about that. And then I think about it also, and like he's um, – my brother is is a very old soul, and I mean that in a good way. Right? He's 27, but he's an old soul. He likes to be detached. He would very much prefer to have lived in 1965 rather than 2023. He doesn't like the technology all the time. He'll use it now because he has to for this. But, like, he used to have screenless Saturday. He'd put his phone away for an entire day, would not watch TV, would not talk on his phone. You could not get in touch with him. He just wanted to be one with nature. He'd make a great Vermonter. He just wanted to be one with nature. Now he can't do that because he has to always be attached to his phone now to have these readings. So um, it's just wild. And I don't know that there's really a point to me telling you all this other than this was something new that over my last couple of days off that, like, I was exposed to. 
and just seeing him now go through it. And I say go through it in quotes because, again, he'll he'll figure this out. He'll learn, and by six months from now, this will all become old hat. Nothing will be a worry, I'm sure. But it's just interesting to see now a difference in his life. And then, you know, I have to be at least cognizant of, okay, hey, do you have your phone? Is your phone charged? Do you need a portable charger so you can take your readings? And, you know, we're checking, hey, do you have a, a glucose tablet? for later if you crash and okay it's really hot out right now that means your body might respond differently and okay what do we need here my brother doesn't drink soda i told you he hasn't had a soda probably in like a decade and at the u.s open we had to you know begrudgingly get a sprite that he hasn't had in in 10 years because he just wants to you know he had to make sure you know that he crashed he had to get his sugar up again and that was the quickest way to do it and you know that was a struggle for him because he's been so committed to not doing that kind of stuff that now he is, he has to do it. It's just a wild difference in lifestyle. And again, there's no, I don't know, there's no re- real reason for me telling you this other than I've just never been exposed to something like this before. And it was wild to see it firsthand. Also, Danny, my brother wrote a book. He did? So, yeah. My brother is 26 and wrote a book. It's called Surrender. My brother is kind of like a self-help book for people in their 20s. Danny, are you, you're 25, right? 26, yeah. I'm going to buy 26? the book now. One, if my brother can write a book, come on, step up your game. You're 26, he's 26, let's go. And two, I know exactly what I'm getting you for Christmas now because my brother's given you the manual to how to survive in your 20s, and now I'm going to give it to you. So now I just got to read Christmas. it. Huh? Now I just got to read it. You're going to read it. I'm going to give it to you. You're going to read it. There will be a quiz. We'll do a chapter a day. Book on tape? Uh, nope. We'll do a chapter a day on the show. And uh, you'll have to tell us what you learned. So once you get it, we'll we'll spend January when the Patriots are no longer playing meaningful football. We will uh, we will quiz you on the book, and we'll do a chapter a day. All right. There you go. So I'll give it to you for Christmas. We'll start reading it January first, and uh, we'll get Danny's thoughts on Troy Farkas's book. Tom Carrot of Nesson is next after CBS News. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM FM and WDEVRadio.com. Welcome back in, Brady Farkas Show, right here on WDEV, AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. Uh, we got Tom Karen, Red Sox Insider at Nesson with us here in just a couple of minutes. CC is live in Kansas City with the Red Sox. He'll be with us momentarily. Danny, that thing from CBS at the end, I know it was blipping in and out a little bit, but about a little kid who recognizes the theme songs of various sporting events on various networks. I got to tell you, it's cute. I don't know that it's overly impressive. Okay, in the annals of the Farkas family basement, there are VHS tapes of Brady, of a young three-year-old Brady Farkas telling you the quarterback of every NFL team. Like, come on. I've seen, I've seen better than that. I gotta tell you. You're just jealous that social media wasn't around when you were that young? If social media was around when I was a kid, I would have been viral for my sports knowledge. There's no doubt about it, right? There was, there's videos of me singing the Monday Night Theme song at age three. I can't even say all the words, but I'm singing it. You two, we want to talk about adorable. Like, there you go. I mean, that kid, like, good for you. I'm glad you know that the ESPN theme song is this way and the CBS football theme song is that way and this is Sunday Night Football. That's great. I was singing Frank and Alan Dan and the Bang Bang Show for ESPN Monday Night Football with uh, Hank Williams 30 years ago. Okay? I was doing that 30 years ago. That's not new. That's not original. I could tell you the quarterback. Before I could say Warren Moon, the old quarterback of the Oilers, I was saying Orland Moon. That's cuter than what that kid's doing. I got to tell you, like again, that's not new. I've seen that. So, you know, I'm not. 
It's impressive. I was far more impressive, impressed. Danny, we do not have this because it's not in our audio database, and I won't be able to find it again quickly. But there was a little kid last year who was like six years old, who was a Red Sox fan, who memorized the entirety of the WEEI Red Sox intro. He memorized the ads. He memorized the highlight calls from Joe Castig. But things like two minutes long. That, to me, is impressive. You know, So he comes in and he's going, you know, Red Sox baseball on WEEI is brought to you by Agway, your Boston trailer company. And then he goes, and brought to you by Shaw's, the official supermarket of the Boston Red Sox. And then he'll just break into a spontaneous highlight where it's Joe saying, for the first time in 86 years, the Red Sox are world champions. Do you believe it? I think that was more impressive to me. Two year, a two, a a seven-year-old with a two-minute monologue memorizing sponsor tags, advertisements, and highlights. That, to me, is where the money's at. I'd rather have that kid go viral. I think we need a game show now of, like, toddlers doing this. I would have, I would have, I would have won it. So I would have been so good at that kind of game. Um, before we get to TC, Danny, you're also continuing to be amazed that my brother wrote a book at the age of 27. Yeah, I feel like I've accomplished nothing. That's frequently how I feel. Just think about how I feel when you get to 33. Here we are watching the U.S. Open. I'm like, hey, Alcaraz is 20. He's already won a U.S. Open. Is already a millionaire. He very well might win again this year. And I'm spending my Fridays before Labor Day hanging out with you. Not that I don't love that. I'm just saying, like, the, the, Taylor Swift, everybody younger than me is rich, it feels like now, right? So, like, this guy bought a house, and this guy owns, this guy's a millionaire, and that guy won the World Series, and that guy threw a no-hitter. You're going to keep feeling that way as you get older, Danny. Something to look forward to. Will you read the book? If I, I'm not going to waste my $17 on you for Christmas if you're not going to read it. Will you read a book about self-help, about guidance through your 20s? Yeah, I'll read it. All right. So... I could get him to sign you a copy, too. He doesn't have very good penmanship. I'll tell him to clean it up for you on the autographed copy. That's all right. Um, maybe we'll make that part of the show. I don't know if we'll do a chapter a day, but maybe a chapter a week. I think it's. I think they're fairly short chapters. Patriots probably won't be playing much meaningful football after January 1st. We'll need some things to fill the time. We'll have UVM basketball at that point. We'll have the Celtics. We'll have the Bruins, which everybody will want me to talk about, and I'll keep railing against until at least February. But, you know, we'll have things to talk about. And, uh you know, we can we can intersperse in some Troy Farkas book club if we want. We can even get Troy on the uh, on the show, have him talk about the book with you, Danny, and kind of tell you exactly what you should be looking for and taking away from it. Twenty something to twenty something. I just want Troy to make an audio book. Makes it easier for all of us. I'm going to text him right now. Well, I'm going to text him while TC is talking and tell him we want an audio book. And also, I want to be paid to do the audio book. Now that you mention it. Oh, you want to voice it? I'll voice it. I don't care if he'll pay me. Like, you know, if he'll pay me, I'll do it. I, you know, not that I don't have better things to do, but I'd like to make a little extra money. I could be the voice of an audio book, I think. I think yeah. I have a decent enough disposition, a decent enough set of pipes. I, I think I could voice audio books. Flawlessly. Have you ever listened to a book on tape, by the way? It's what I did through high school, actually. The ones I could find, anyway, on YouTube. Oh, wow. What a good idea that would have been when I was in high school. Is I'm... listening to books on tape. I, dude, I hated reading so much in high school. I read one book in high school, I think. Like, you know, I, I really enjoyed reading The Fountainhead by Ayn Rand. George Thomas hates that book. He comes in after us on most days here. We were talking about it once. He hates that book. I really liked The Fountainhead by Ayn Rand. I also enjoyed The Count of Monte Cristo at one point by Alexander Dumas. But 
I didn't read all those books. Like, I read part of it. Spark noted part of it. Did they have Spark Notes when you were in high school, Danny? Or oh, of course. Is that yeah. a relic spark of the notes. Past? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Everybody so, used Spark Notes. I would Spark Notes the book. I would. We also had Pink Monkey at one point, which was a thing that would give Cliff Notes versions of the book. I'd ask the really smart guy with the locker next to me what happened, and then I'd read, you know, a couple pages here and there. So I hated reading. If if audiobooks had been around, though, I, I, I might have been a much different student when it came to reading, no doubt about it. I actually just reread the uh, Fountainhead for the first time since high school just with the book on tape. I went to, uh, you know, whatever it is, the audiobook app on your tablet or on your phone, and I listened to it. The thing is like 800 pages. It was going to take like 30 hours to read or to, to listen to. I'm like, no, ain't nobody got time for 30 hours. So I took the abridged version of it that cut it down to eight hours, and I listened to the whole thing. I was very impressed with the guy who did it. The guy who did it, the audiobook, one, who's got time to, to, to voice things for 32 hours? And two, he played every part. So, like, the mother, the whiny mother, he played it. The strong, dominating guy, he played it. The, the, the seductive and gentle woman, he played it. This is the same guy doing every, like, this guy should get a role on Broadway with what he's doing here. Like, this is phenomenal work here by this guy. I don't know that I could do that, but just doing a first-person account of my brother's book, I could probably do. So, uh, yeah, $17 on Amazon is how much my brother's book costs, Danny. Uh, save your money. I'll buy it for you for the holiday, and now I know what you're getting. I was going to get you headphones because you don't have your own set of headphones, and you use the ones in the studio. And now that you're a big-timer who's full-time, you need your own set of headphones. But I'm going to pass on the headphones, I think, and get you my brother's book. Can't wait. Will you please get yourself a set of headphones? It's my biggest I like these headphones. But they're – I'm not going to say they're dirty because I don't want to implicate people that we work with. But, like, six different people use those headphones. Don't you want your own? Like, I'm not a germaphobe or anything, but, like, I like my own stuff. Don't you want your own headphones? This is a brand-new pair, and I think only a couple of And it's going to be worn by somebody else after you tomorrow. No, there's there's wipes in here. We're good. You need your own headphones. Please, get your own headphones. Okay. All right. Christmas time. We'll take a collection in to get Danny a pair of headphones, a good pair of headphones. We need at least $75 for people who want to donate to Danny's uh, Get a Headphone Fund because he needs good ones. It can't just be the Apple earbuds that come out of the iPhone box that they still do that. They need We need good studio-quality headphones, and uh, we need at least $75 probably to be able to make it happen. What we've made happen now is tracking down Tom Caron, our Red Sox insider over at Nesson. TC is live in Kansas City with the Red Sox as they get ready for their next series with the Kansas City Royals. Red Sox are six and a half games back after just a dreadful series in Houston, six and a half back of the third and final wild card spot. TC, live from the bowels of Kauffman Stadium, I'm told with us now. TC, how are you? Doing well, Brady. How you doing? I'm doing well as well. Uh, let me, before we get into the thick of things with the Red Sox, let me start with this. I texted you that Wednesday we weren't talking because we had the Red Sox game, but I was also at the U.S. Open. Um, that was my first time at any tennis tournament, first time at a major, certainly. It was awesome. What is left on Tom Karen's sports bucket list? Ooh. Um, well, I mean, there's there's, uh, there's a World Cup game. I've never seen a World Cup game. That would be number one, and I'll do that next time when they're in the U.S. in uh, 26. Uh, the, the Kentucky Derby has always been on my list, um, but that just for the, you know, the pomp and circumstance of it, not that I'm a huge horse racing guy, but I, I always thought that'd be fun. Um, 
Not a ton else. I, I, I never would have thought this, but the last year or so I've gotten into F1 a little bit. I'd, I'd love to see a real Grand Prix, like a Monaco Grand Prix, like one of the yep. ones, you know, over there. Uh, there's a lot of, I, I mean, I, I got to see Liverpool play a couple of years ago uh, over there. I'm a big soccer guy, with, you know. So there's some of the classic places over there, but that you can go forever listing off the different play. But, you know, I've, I've been to the Super Bowl. I've been to the NBA uh, finals. I've been to the Stanley Cup finals. I've been to the World Series. Um, I've, I've hit most of the things I hope to hit someday. Well, certainly, uh, your, your bucket list is more full than mine. And mine's pretty good, but yours is more full than mine. I've never been to the U.S. Open and I, I like tennis. So that, that way, I'm sure it was a blast. Um, I, you know, the Masters I'd love to go to once, right? There's just some of those sort of specific events now as opposed to leagues or championships. I, I, you know, I'd love to hit, I'd love to hit Wimbledon. I think yeah. that would be a blast. Um, so yeah, some of those, that might be a retirement thing. Just, just spend a year hitting all the sports things I haven't hit. The thing that was amazing about the U.S. Open is so we got the grounds pass, right? And the grounds pass led us into almost everything. The only thing we couldn't do was go into Arthur Ashe Stadium. That was the only thing we couldn't do with it. We could go into Louis Armstrong Stadium though, and we did. So, but just the, the freedom of movement around the complex was very, very cool to me. You did not have to sit and post up at one match for four hours. You could be very, very transient in terms of walking around. So I was watching doubles literally like could high five the players. We were on, on the rail first row. You were that close to doubles. It was like spring training on the back complex, uh, you know, in Fort Myers for you. But then we also sat in the upper deck at Iga Fiontek, the number one player in the world on the women's side in Louis Armstrong Stadium. So you, you were able to bounce back and forth between the two, which was very cool. True story. There used to be uh, a, a big uh, tennis event in Vermont, right? It was called the Volvo uh, International Forever. It used to be at Stratton uh, Mountain. And they had a whole, you know, a legit, like, 5,000-seat stadium that they would assemble for. It was a big event back in the, uh, I would say, late 80s. And and so I was either interning or had just started at uh, Channel 5 uh, in, in Plattsburgh, Burlington. And I went down to cover it. And and if you know anything about television, you know, this, this was back in the day where you had a big camera with a cable connecting it to this big tape deck. Mm-hmm. with three-quarter-inch tapes that were these massive, oversized tapes the size of a, of a VCR player, you know, almost. And, and you know, to put in a tape, it's like you have to eject it and go, ding, ding, and you pull it out. So I, I somehow ta- – I'm shooting it. I'm, I'm this intern. I'm shooting it for Channel 5. And somehow I just kept kind of blustering my way through checkpoints, like I'm TV. I'm Yeah, I'm shooting. I'm TV. I'm just, and it was televised by ESPN. It was an ESPN event. And and somehow they put me on the court. Like I was in one of these photo booths on behind one of the end lines on the court, you know, like in front of the crowd, 20 feet from the players. And so the match, it was the championship, and it was John McEnroe against Yvonne Lendl. Wow. And it's this, you know, it's amazing. And this is when, when tennis, you know, they were gods, right? They were, the, the names were huge. And... So I, in the middle of play, my tape ends, I lean over, I eject it, it's all this noise, I put the deck in, I slam it, I look up to shoot, and John McEnroe is leaning over me. He is now, you know, 18 inches from my face. And this is in the classic heyday of John McEnroe's, you know, explosions on the court. And the whole crowd is, and, and you know, so everybody's looking at me. And I'm ready for him to just lose it, because clearly I was making too much noise, right? And he just looks at me and goes, are we done? <laughs> I'm like, 
man. Yeah, yeah, we're done. He goes, can I help? I was like, no. No, you're good. Yeah, please, walk away. Oh. And he did. He walked away. He didn't lose it. But it was like that, that classic, you know, what? I, I, yeah. And then at the end of that set, somebody came down, tapped me on the shoulder. Yeah, you're not supposed to be this close. They go up top and shoot up there. All right, thanks. Tom Karen, Red Sox Insider, and that's it. Only with TC can we get information like that because someone actually brought up the Volvo yesterday and was like, didn't there used to be, <laughs> didn't there used to be a tennis tournament in Vermont? I'm like, I have absolutely no idea. I have it absolutely did. no idea. It was, uh, when I covered it, it was at Stratton and it used to be somewhere else. I think Stowe. That's what someone said. Stowe 79 was they, was uh, what they brought it up to me. So. See, 10 years later, it had moved to Stratton down in Manchester and then it, uh, it went away. But we, I got to hang with a uh, Lendl at the golf course. It was a huge deal and they'd all roll in and they loved it because it was probably in July. I'm guessing that that seems to be what's in my mind. Yeah. It was summer in Vermont. Yeah. It was just a, it was a big deal, but it was a little quieter and they would just take over the town. They'd be in all the bars and restaurants and so it was a blast. TC, let's move to the Red Sox here. Do we um, have to? I'd really rather talk about tennis and yeah. Well, I need your answer to this question at least. We played this game yesterday. Describe the Red Sox season in one word. What word oh. would you choose? Hmm. Um, uh, the word I'm, I'm trying to, uh, 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 I, for reference, it, I, well, one I need I need a because it's a noun. So okay. a conundrum because okay. I just I can't. I mean, at any given time, I or, or bipolar maybe that would be the other word I would mm-hmm. use. Um, I I just because I, the thing about it is day after day after day, you know, when you when you're ready, you know, three weeks ago when you were ready to pull the plug, they turn it around and put together a nine and four stretch and get back on the edge of it. Anytime, you know, coming home for that, that weekend series with Toronto and, and they closed it to two and a half and you're like, this is when they make the move. You know, they, they put together one of their worst weekends, uh, of the season. Uh, this past series with Houston was, was just, was awful, right? It was when you needed to show a little bit of a fight to save your season, they couldn't, uh, just, yeah, head scratching, if that's one word, it just all of it, you know, the ups and downs. I still think at the end of the day, I'm going to look back on this season and, and think they kind of overachieved compared to what people expected. Uh, I, I said the other day, I didn't say it on air we were going to, but we didn't have time. <clears throat> I almost feel like you can divide baseball into thirds right now. There's the upper class, the middle class, and the lower class. The upper class, the heavy hitters who are going to the playoffs. I feel like the Red Sox have gotten themselves to the point where they are probably the best team of the middle class. Right. But when you saw them try to punch above their weight with the Astros and Dodgers, you just got a reminder. That's what the upper class looks like right now. And the Red Sox need to get themselves back there. We had Buster on yesterday. He shows maddening as his word. I chose frustrating and frustrating for all the reasons you just said. And also just I go back, TC, to roster construction. Because, and I think both things can be true. High and Bloom's going to get a lot of blame for how this team was built. I believe that High and Bloom built a team that was capable of winning. There were good players here that were capable of winning. The frustration for me lies in the fact that you were forced to rely on a bunch of guys you probably shouldn't be relying on. Adam Duvall to stay healthy, which he hasn't done. Chris Sale to stay healthy, which he hasn't done. James Paxton, a 23-year-old Brian Bayo. There were just a lot of reliance on guys that I couldn't necessarily count on. And I needed more sure things. The back of the baseball card collection for these Red Sox, I think, is pretty good. But the, the, the roster construction always felt like it was on a house of cards and eventually it toppled one too many times. 
Yeah, and and you know, even if you go back to midseason, if you go back to the trade deadline, right? When 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 you start talking about, well, they've got Chris Sale and Tanner Houck and Garrett Whitlock coming back, and 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 there's truth to that, right? And, and Adam Duvall coming back, like these were these were impact guys who come back. But the problem on the pitching side, when you have that many pitchers coming back from injury, you've got that many pitchers on on strict pitch counts, right? On very short leashes. And I don't think what I anticipated, and I should have, and I'll, I'll file this away for future reference in, in other seasons, is, is that when you're leaning on that many guys who have to be brought along slowly, you are going to completely blow out your bullpen. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, we had the graphic, I think it's a 12-game stretch now, where the starters have averaged fewer than five innings a start. Fewer than five. And right. this is mostly now with a five-man rotation, right? This isn't earlier when you had – 40% of the games were being opened rather than started, right? This is when, when you got everybody back, you're getting five innings a night plus out of your bullpen, and it's not sustainable, right? And that's what we saw. There were there were some games, you know, the Friday night game a week ago against the Dodgers, you had that lead in the sixth inning. You know, you, you brought Cutter Crawford out for the third time through Mookie Betts at the top of the order just because you're trying to buy a little rest for the bullpen. That backfires. Pavetta, who's probably overworked at that point, third appearance in a week, uh, he can't protect it, even though he's been really good all year. You know, there's just been moments like that where Whitlock coughs it up, where, where you know, and, 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 you know, so I think that's more than anything. You lean too much on guys who weren't going to be able to carry the workload. The other part of it is the defense, Right. I mean, that's it. If you're talking about maddening or frustrating, the number one uh, item on that list for me is the defense. I mean, you just we had the list of, you know, they, they've got 92 errors, I think, the most in Major League Baseball. We showed that list and it was the top seven error committing teams in baseball. And not one of them is in the playoffs right now. And and it's as simple as that. If you can't catch and throw the ball, you're not going to you're not going to go anywhere. And this team has had real trouble catching and throwing the ball. It's been a step back for Rafi Devers defensively. It really has. We've seen some of the young guys come up and not be that good defensively. Duvall is not a center fielder. He's a corner outfielder. Uh, all that stuff uh, starts to add up and gets really frustrating. Trevor Story's been been great coming back, and I look forward to a full year of him uh, manning that position. That'll help. Uh, but, man, they got to clean it up. TC, I, I don't know that I agree with this, and I don't even know that this is exactly what he was saying. But the fact that Buster was even wondering this yesterday – was a problem. He wonders if Red Sox ownership looks at the season at the end of the year and goes, yeah, we didn't win, but we ran a better business model. And are they happy with that? Like if the books are good, are they happy? And I don't know that that's true, but the fact he's even asking that seems to be a problem. Yeah. And, and I don't think it's true. Um, you know, I, I, I talked to Tom Warner from time to time and, and, you know, they, they still, Everything they, you know, whether it's, and again, they've built a massive sports conglomerate, right? But when you talk to them about the Red Sox or Liverpool or Pittsburgh, all this, they really start with, with trying to win. You know, the exhilaration of winning, winning is good for business, winning sells tickets next year. Uh, that all matters. Uh, but, but it's a big business now with, with a lot of, uh, involvement from a lot of different people and, and a lot of outside stuff, right? Uh, real estate development and, and, and a partnership with Live Nation on the MGM Music Hall. Just a lot of stuff uh, that's that's kind of built. But when you talk to them, they were talking about the, the Red Sox have the foundation of it all. Um, well, th- if this has been a three-year rebuild, it, it better be done, 
right? I mean, you better get out of it for next year. Uh, I, you know, there's got to be a reckoning here in the first week of October as far as where they are and where they're going. Because I, I think he's done, Heim's done a really good job, obviously, building up that farm system. But there's still not a lot of pitching coming in the pipeline uh, anytime soon. Uh, and and make the argument, and, and Bloom has told me this, that, you know, the good thing about going into this offseason is it's no longer an a, 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 buy a shopping list of seven or eight things they need. It's now going to be two or three, right, a couple of pitchers and a right-handed bat. Uh, so that makes life a lot easier because now maybe you can overspend on those items and rather than getting seven budget players, right, or, 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 you know, five out of the seven. Now you can probably go into the elite end. Yamamoto, the pitcher who's going to pose from Japan, uh, guys like that that you're going to spend money on. I, you know, two pitchers could really make this team interesting coming into next year and make you feel like they're ready to contend. But, but this year, you know, I think you're right. I think they just built it all up on the hope that injured guys would be able to to stay healthy and that guys who are coming off good years would be able to step up now and have career years. A few have, a lot haven't. More shoddy roster construction. Red Sox or Patriots, go. Oof. <laughs> uh, I go, I, man, I got to go Patriots right now just because <laughs> at, at least, you know, at least the Red Sox have sort of flirted with it most of the year. I'm worried about this Patriot team coming into the year. But man, that's, uh, that's, let's, I mean, yeah, both, both, all of the above. C, all of the above. 11 offensive linemen, one quarterback on the initial 53. Yeah, uh, Tom Brady's still out there. Let's go grab him. Uh, it, you know, it, the interesting thing to me is we, we had dinner. I'm in Kansas City with the team and, 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 you know, the Nesson people had dinner last night. We were just talking about what you said, what there's games to play and, and there's, games to watch you do wonder like what this month means to the decisions they make in the offseason as far as management right i mean does 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 catching toronto mean something right i mean in the eyes of ownership like finishing third with 84 wins is that i mean that's a big step from last year right when you were last place and, and well under 500 um is that enough to feel that this year was a little better i and i'm not convinced you know, Texas is the only team to sort of watch now. You got a three game series with Texas coming up. They got to play Houston coming up. So what if you swept Kansas City and Texas lost two out of three from Minnesota this week? And now you're back to four and a half and you got, you know, that my, the way this team has, has played this year, my guess is there's one more little flirt with three or four games out before it's all said and done. I, I don't think it'll be enough to get them there, but it wouldn't shock me. For them to raise our expectations one more time, only to then, you know, get swept by Toronto or, or something and, and fall on, on their face again. So it's, yeah, that's the maddening, frustrating, bipolar. Those are all good words. Catch whoever you want. Just don't catch the Mariners. Tom Carrot, Red Sox insider. I don't think you have to worry about that. Red Sox, I, I'm a Mariners fan. I worry about everything, TC. Yeah, so. Fair. TC, enjoy Kansas City. Hopefully no weirdo home runs and uh, foul balls like last year uh, that you have to explain down there on the left field wall. And uh, we'll look forward to watching tonight. Good stuff. Thanks, Brady. Appreciate it. Absolutely. There goes TC live from Kauffman Stadium getting ready for Red Sox and Royals. Our coverage begins at 40 minutes at 710. We'll have the lineup for you coming up here in about 20 minutes or so, about 650. A little bit later than that, James Paxson on the mound against Jordan Lyles. A lot of good stuff from TC there. Look. And think about it two ways. One, TC is in television, right? He is trying to get you to watch the Red Sox. So when he tells you, like, his job is dependent on 
ratings and revenue that's generated from those ratings, right? He wants people to listen. He wants people to watch. I want people to listen here to our coverage on DEV. He is right in telling you, oh, they might make it interesting. They got some reason. They got some things so they can get back in it a little bit. He's trying to sell you that, and I'm trying to sell you it also, full disclosure, right? I want you to listen to Red Sox games here on DEV. It's good for us as a business. It's good for us as a company. It's good for us as a show. Now, I think TC's right. I think he absolutely, the Red Sox can flirt with some relevance again for the rest of the year, right? Like, Seattle's going to play a really tough schedule at the end of the year. They're going to play the Dodgers. They're going to play the Rays. They're going to play the Reds. they got the Astros again. they got the Rangers again. Rangers have the Astros, have the Mariners again. Like, so other teams in front of you will lose games. The Red Sox may be able to make some headway. I just think ultimately it's not going to be enough. There's not enough time left in the season for the Red Sox to go and make a, a big splash in the standings. 802-585-3026, that is the text line number. Something else TC said. If the Red Sox miss the playoffs but win 84 games more than last year, would you view it as a true improvement? I'll tell you what I think next on DEV. Welcome back to Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Text line's open, 802-585-3026. I want to go back to something that Tom Karen said just minutes ago with us. And, and Danny did a great job getting this cut already for us here. Um, I want to play this back. We're talking about the Red Sox and the idea. Let's just say this. Let's say the Red Sox finished the year with 84 wins. Okay? 84 and 78. That would be a six-win improvement from last year. Okay? Last year they went 78 and 84. They finished last. Let's say they go 84 and 78 this year and finish third or fourth in the division. Here's TC's question. Does does catching does catching Toronto, Toronto mean, something? mean something? Right. I mean, in the eyes of ownership, like finishing third with 84 wins is that? I mean, that's a big step from last year, right? When you were last place and, and well under 500. Um, is that enough to feel that this year was a little better? Right. 802-585-3026. If the Red Sox make a six-game improvement, 84 and 78 versus 78 and 84, if they finish third or fourth in the division instead of last, will you see this year as a success? Danny, I know what I think. I want to wait for some texters to get in. I want to ask you what you think. Okay? Six-game improvement. You don't finish last. Would you see that as a truly better season in which you are building positively? Six games is not enough to say you improved. I, You know what? I disagree with you in general, but I don't think it would be improvement for the Red Sox. And let me explain why. So I, I disagree with TC's premise or with TC's question there. If the Red Sox finish 84 and 78, I'm not going to look at this season and say, okay, they're building. And the reason why is this, because the Red Sox are not building – with enough young players that I think that they're just going to take off next year. Okay, like let's let's look at it this way. Let's look at it let's look at it from an NFL perspective. Okay, the Indianapolis Colts are a team that, eh, not even the Colts. Number one pick in the draft this year was the Carolina Panthers. Okay, Carolina Panthers were picking number one in the draft. Ah, that's a bad example because they were they traded from that. Uh, we'll use Houston, number two pick in the draft. So Houston was the second worst team in the NFL last year. They were picking second in the draft. They won whatever they won. We'll call it five games. I can't remember at the top of my head. We'll call it five games. Well, if they win 
five games this year again with C.J. Stroud. But if C.J. Stroud starts every game and you can see visible improvement, I would say their five wins this year are an improvement over five wins last year. And if they win seven games in season two with C.J. Stroud, I would say that's an improvement as well. And if they can win seven games in season two, then I'd look at them and say, okay, season three, now I can see it, right? Nine wins, ten wins, division title, playoff game, right? Like, it's a slow, incremental build, but you can see it because you know you're growing as a young player. I think about it like Jacksonville in the NFL, right? I saw Jacksonville against the Patriots at Gillette Stadium, I think week 16 or week 17 of the 2021 season. And... Jacksonville, I think, went 2-15 and 15 that year, or 3-14, and 14, one of the two. And they looked awful. Last year, boom, nine wins. Eight wins, nine wins, whatever it was. They win the AFC South, get to the playoffs, and they push the Chiefs. They beat the Chargers in round one. And now people are picking Jacksonville to be a team that could go to the AFC title game. So you can see steady improvement. I think about the Mariners, right? Again, a team we talked a lot about early, a team that I know very well. If the Mariners tore it down to studs and then one year won 68 games, but then brought up a couple kids and next year won 74 games, I'd say, okay, it's improvement. Because I could see a growth there. I could see the young players getting better. I could see the young players building. And I can start to envision 74 wins this year, now 80 wins the next year, now 87, 88 wins, and now we go. So you can see it. You can conceptualize it. I don't have that with the Red Sox. Why don't I have that with the Red Sox? Why don't I have that same belief? Because their improvement is based upon guys that won't necessarily be here next year and certainly won't be here for the long term. And that's the problem. Okay, So I don't look at the Red Sox and say, oh, yeah, they improved by six games and now we go. I look at it and say, yeah, they improved by six games, but they may lose a lot of these guys that are responsible for that, right? Like, Justin Turner and Kenley Jansen are a big part of their team being better this year. They are not long-term answers for the Red Sox, right? So I can't just look at them and be like, okay, it's all great because we got Jansen and, every, you know, everyone's going to get better. And Jan- no, I don't know that. In fact, you're going to take a step back potentially in a few years, right, because Jansen's going to be gone and Turner's going to be gone and Paxton might be gone and Sale is going to be gone. And, oh, yeah, by the way, we might trade Verdugo. So I look at the Red Sox and say, I, I don't know that I see the growth necessarily. I am excited by Casas. I am excited by Bayo. I'm excited by Crawford. I'm excited by Duran. There are good things here. I'm excited for Story to be back. So there are good things to be excited about. But there's also enough things that may not be. Duvall's not going to be here next year. Verdugo might probably won't be here next year. Paxton very well might not be. Turner might opt out. Like, so the gains you see from the younger players, like, I, okay, Costas will be better next year. Great. Oh, yeah, but uh, Turner might not be here at Counteraxon. Okay, Duran could be pretty good next year. Yeah, but Verdugo's not going to be here and that Counteraxon. And, okay, Bayo's going to be pretty good. Yeah, but they might lose Paxton. And, oh, Pavetta they might trade. So, Danny, are, are you making – is this making sense? Am I saying this the way that I want to say it, that I just don't see – okay, you're a Celtics fan. If I told you that the Celtics were – going with a youth movement, they were going to play with a bunch of draft picks, and okay, this year they're going to be really bad, they're going to go 20-62, and 62. but then those next year the, the players are going to be 19 years old, and they're going to win 26 games, and they're going to be 20 years old, and they're going to win 34 games, 
and then they're going to be 21 years old. And you're like, okay, now they're going to win 40 games. And they're like, you can see a logical progression here. The Red Sox aren't playing with that much youth that I can't for like I can't allow myself to get that excited. Am I? Is that making sense, Danny? Yeah, you're saying the incremental improvement needs to be more with younger players if if you want to feel good about the future at all, right? Yes, exactly, hundred percent. If you're going to have an incremental improvement, it needs to be the result of something that I can count on going up, 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 up. I don't see the Red Sox going up, up, up necessarily. I see a give and take. Duran better next year. Bayo better next year. Casas better next year. That's good. Story here next year. That's good. But as those four players go up, well, Jansen's going to get older. Might go down. Turner's going to get older. Might go down. Might be gone. Verdugo's going to get traded. Duvall's not going to be here. And whatever gains you had by those other players are going to be counteracted by players that are weighing you down, don't improve, get worse, or leave entirely. So I still need more youth ultimately in the system to feel really good about where the Red Sox are at in the long term, to feel really good about where they're at in the long term. 802-585-3026. If you're looking for reasons to watch, if you're looking for reasons to listen the rest of the way, I go no further than the continued development of those young players. I want to see Bayo pitch more. I want to see Bayo get to a career high in innings. I want to see Casas continue to hit down the stretch, continue to get better defensively. Duran, unfortunately, is out for the rest of the year with his foot injury. He's going to need surgery, so he's gone. I want to see Story get the reps and get healthy for next year so I can feel really good about him again as a bat next year, as a middle-of-the-order bat. I want to see, you know, I still like Cutter Crawford. I don't know ultimately what his role is, but I like Cutter Crawford. I'd like to see how Hauk does and see exactly what he could be. How does Pavetta do? So there are still reasons. If Rafael is here or Willie Arabreu, there are reasons to watch this team beyond just the standings. As TC said, I think they can, you know, make one last push at relevance, but ultimately one last push at relevance is not going to get them into the playoffs. At least I'm pretty sure they're not going to the playoffs. I mean, let's look, let's have a little fun right now with playoff odds here. I, uh, I, again, I don't really love the playoff odds machine over at Fangraphs, but I look at the Red Sox. They have a four and a half percent, four and a half percent chance to make the playoffs. Four and a half. So, you look at the teams who are in front of them, right? Houston, 95. Seattle, 87. Texas, 71. Tampa, 99. Baltimore, 99. Toronto, 44. So the closest the Red Sox have is a 40% disparity from Toronto, right? Four and a half to 44. 40, 40% disparity. That's not, that's not giving me a whole lot of reason here to be, uh, real optimistic about the standings, but there are reasons to watch. I look at the Red Sox too the rest of the way. They have the sixth hardest schedule in baseball. 28 games left for the Red Sox, the sixth hardest schedule in baseball. Um, of the teams I just mentioned, that is the hardest of anybody, right? Seattle's got the eighth hardest. Uh, Texas, the 15th hardest. Houston, the 28th hardest, so the third easiest. And Toronto, I missed in there somewhere. They are 26th hardest, which is fifth easiest. So it's not a, it's a pretty difficult odds right now for the Red Sox. Right now it is, let's see, Danny, let's go a little, uh, 
let's go a little backwards today. I always like to give the Red Sox lineup at the end of the show, but I want to get to a Patriots thing, and I don't want to jump back and forth. So give me the Red Sox music. Now let's get the Red Sox lineup. Very winnable games on tap for this weekend in Kansas City, right? The Royals are a bad baseball team, but they are a scrappy baseball team. Trust me, we saw this a couple weeks ago in Boston. The Royals play hard. They have a bad starting staff. They have a bad bullpen. But they have one of the best young players in the game in Bobby Wood Jr. They have a very, very fast team that runs a lot and creates havoc on the bases. They will play hard. They took the Mariners for a ride they couldn't believe a couple weeks ago in Kansas City. Here they are in Kansas City again. The Royals are 41-94. and It's a bad, bad record. But it's scary to play a team that has nothing to lose. Red Sox are 69-65. and James Paxton pitches for Boston. He's 7-4 with a 3-9-9. Jordan Lyles, 3-15 with a 6-5-1 for KC. Alex Verdugo leads off for the Sox, 277. Rafael Devers is the third, hitting 267 with 29 homers and 89 ribbies. Justin Turner's the DH. He's got 22 homers. Tristan Casas is at first. Adam Duvall's in center. Masataka Yoshida down to sixth today. He's in left. Trevor Story's at shortstop, hitting 194. Luis Arias is at second, and Connor Wong is the catcher, and he bats ninth. The uh, Royals lineups features Michael Garcia, who's 277 with 19 home runs. A very excitable young player at the top of the order, Bobby Wood Jr. 276, 82 RBIs, 38 steals, 27 homers. Salvador Perez missed a couple games with injuries. He's back. He can hit home runs, 19 of them on the year. Nick Massey is at second. I don't recall too many second basemen hitting cleanup. Robinson Cano, there are a few. Jeff Kent, but not many. Uh, let's see. Freddie Fermin is the catcher tonight. He bats fifth. Nick Velasquez is in left field, and he or uh, Nelson Velasquez, excuse me, he bats sixth. Drew Waters is in right. The one of the Royals' top prospects, Nick Lofton, is in the lineup today for his Major League debut. And Kyle Isbell, the speedy outfielder, is in center. And he bats ninth. That's going to do it for the Red Sox portion of our show. I do have one Patriots note I want to give you before we get out of Dodge today. Credit, unexpected credit, for one Bill Belichick. I've got to give it to him. That's next on DEB. Welcome back in, Brady Farkas Show, right here on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. First full Friday of high school football action tonight around the state of Vermont. We spoke in the afternoon news to Jack Maine of NBC5 News, and a, a former intern for us here at DEV is doing great things at NBC5. His interview with what he's looking for tonight and looking for this season around the state in high school football is available on our podcast channel on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at WDEVradio.com. So if you're interested in Vermont high school football, Jack's interview is there. I want to give a little bit of credit to Bill Belichick, and I think that's only fair, right? I've been critical of Bill Belichick, so it's time to give credit where credit is due. Bill Belichick appears to be giving Bill O'Brien the freedom to run his offense the way he sees fit. And you might think, oh, Brady, that's no big deal, right? Like, it's the offensive coordinator. He should be able to run the offense his way. That was a question I had when it came to Bill Belichick. As Bill Belichick gets older... I believe that Bill Belichick doesn't trust a lot of people. And I think that's probably a normal thing as you age, no matter what you do, or you just talk about life in general. I think Bill Belichick doesn't trust a lot of people. And I think that's part of the reason why he went to Joe Judge and Matt Patricia, a couple of people who were kind of indebted to him, who he could control and manipulate a little bit, who would do what he says, and guys that he has a good relationship with. And I wondered, whoever the offensive coordinator was, would Bill Belichick really let them do it their way? 
or would he try to just make sure he had his thumbprint on it? Now, Bill O'Brien is a guy who he's worked with before, who he appears to trust, and is letting him run the offense the way he sees fit. And I have to give Bill Belichick credit for that. Bill Belichick, I think, is a guy who hasn't wanted to go outside the organization, who hasn't wanted to try new things, who's been stubborn and stuck in his ways, and who has wanted guys who only he feels very, very comfortable with, and that is a small group of people. Well, Bill O'Brien appears to be in that small group of people yet again. And maybe I never should have doubted it, but I did. Even though they worked together, it was a decade or so ago, I didn't know if Bill Belichick would have the same level of trust in Bill O'Brien now as he did then. He appears to be having that. And apparently that's being proven by the decision to quarterback. So Bill O'Brien doesn't really love Bill, Bailey Zappi, according to reports. So Bill, so Bill Belichick says, okay, we will release Bailey Zappi. We will sign him to the practice squad, and we will go get you a quarterback that you like to work with, bring, enter, Matt Corral, the kid who they signed yesterday out of Ole Miss. I didn't really put two and two together, but Ted Johnson, former Patriots linebacker, did. One of the big questions was how much power does Bill O'Brien have? Significant. I think we, I think we know that answer now. And I think, Mike, you were on it all, all day today, and Michael, you're saying the same thing. You, I think you guys are absolutely right when it's, it clearly shows that Bill O'Brien has more power maybe than we all thought. We all, we, we kind of knew that, you know, that was, the offense was his. But personnel decisions? I mean, you know, bring, you know bringing in, uh, the, you know, the, the uh, Trace McSorley was a Bill O'Brien move. I think this was a, obviously a Bill O'Brien move. Now, I don't love always giving the offensive coordinator personnel decisions. Like, it's one thing when it's a backup quarterback. It's another thing when it's letting the first-round draft pick be chosen by the OC. That I don't love. I wouldn't want Bill O'Brien to have that kind of power. But when we're talking about backup quarterbacks and third-string quarterbacks, I'm fine with it. But giving Bill O'Brien the confidence and the say in his offense, I think, is important. And it does give me a degree of hope that the Patriots' offense certainly will be better than it was a year ago. It will certainly look better than it did a year ago. Because I don't think Bill O'Brien is necessarily coaching looking over his shoulder, which is what I think other coaches might be, which is what I think any other coach would have had to been doing. I haven't been confident in Bill Belichick to trust and empower his coaches. He appears to be trusting and empowering Bill O'Brien. I give him credit for that. They don't have still as much talent as other teams. They're still reliant on getting breaks. That's not Hope is not a strategy. I still believe that. That said, there is confidence, at least, that the offense looks better than a year ago. Danny, I can't believe next week when we come in on Tuesday, we are going to be in game week for the Patriots. And next week, the show will sound a little different. We're going to have a new intro on the show by the time we come in on Tuesday. We're going to have our football-related imaging ready coming for you on Tuesday. It will be game week. We will be all in. Yes, on on Red Sox and Royals recap over the weekend, but we will be all in on Patriots-Eagles week one, which is coming our way, coming up on September 10th. I can't believe it. Game week for the Patriots next week. I hope you all have a great holiday weekend. I hope you all have a safe weekend. If you're out on Lake Champlain or out on Lake Memphis-Magog or somewhere out of the water, do be safe. Do be responsible. Be safe on the roadways as well. Have a great weekend, a relaxing weekend. No show on Monday because we have the Red Sox on in the daytime and early afternoon start for them. Thanks to TC for stopping by. Thanks to Danny for engineering the program. As always, intern Tristan in studio today as well. Always great to have him involved. And again, the interviews with TC and Jack Main available on the podcast channel. Have a great weekend. Red Sox baseball, 10 minute, uh, about 15 minutes from now, coming up at 710 after CBS News on DEV.